Hi, welcome to Living Water Bible Fellowship's audio sermons. It's our prayer and hope that you'll be encouraged and uplifted by the preaching of God's Word. Stick around after the message to hear more about how to contact us. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27. Will you follow Jesus Christ? Mark chapter 8, verse 27. What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? May God bless the reading of His Word. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Caesarea Philippi was on the Syrian border, way up north, the far end of Israel. It was a place where there weren't many Jews. It was a place where the customs and the traditions and the the following of Yahweh wasn't very prevalent. One of the famous shrines there to foreign gods was to the god Pan, half man, half goat. People worshipped him as the god of the flocks. A strange, strange place for Jesus to ask his disciples who he was. The shrine to Pan was famous. There's many, many other shrines in the area. The base of Mount Hermon, the headwaters of the Jordan River, flowed out of a cave where Pan was worshipped. A strange place in the midst of other gods to say, Who do you say I am? Jesus has been with His disciples for about a year now, maybe more than a year. They've seen Him cast out demons. They've seen Him heal people. They've heard His teachings. They see again and again His character. They see again His power and His authority and His might. And in the midst of pagan gods, in the midst of false gods, uh, people worshiping, they can see the people going to the shrines and lighting the candles, going to the shrines and making offerings. Who do you say I am? He's calling for a verdict. He's asking for a decision. The time has come for them to make their their minds up, to come to a conclusion about who He is. He he starts off in a way to set them up by asking, who do people say I am as they're looking at people worshiping false gods? Who do people say I am? Elijah, you remember, he went to heaven in a chariot. He was bodily raised, uh, not even dying. He was taken up, and so in... Jesus' day, uh, some of the Jewish people thought of Elijah as kind of like the uh, Roman Catholics think of saints today. There's somebody up there in heaven praying for me. There's somebody up there watching over me uh, beyond, you know, God is. But there's a saint up there. Elijah is watching over me. He's taking care of me. 
He's uh, blessing me. And so some people thought Elijah was, was there, and maybe Jesus was the Elijah that Malachi preached uh, on uh, before the coming of the king, before the Messiah came. Maybe Elijah's come back to prepare the way. Others say John the Baptist. You remember what happened to John the Baptist? He was beheaded. He was killed. So they're saying maybe John the Baptist was reincarnated. Some people are saying that about you, Jesus. Kind of laughable, but some people really believe that. Others say you're one of the prophets. In fact, Moses predicted, he preached in Deuteronomy 18.15 that there was a prophet like me. Moses said, be sure you listen to the prophet who is to come. And so some people say you're the prophet or one of the prophets in the line of the prophets. So Jesus heard that and, oh, that's, that's really interesting, is it? He looked him in the eye. He dramatic pause probably. And he says, who do you say I am? What's your verdict? You've had plenty of evidence. You've seen the things I've done. You've seen what, the, the messages I've given you. You've heard my preaching. You've seen the miracles and the wonder of God, the glory of God in your midst. Who do you say I am? It, it's, it's a big moment. Peter, unflinchingly, uh, the leader of the twelve, he, he says, he, he's, he brings to a conclusion his verdict, his judgment, and it's probably the same judgment as, as all of them, except maybe Judas. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Uh, what is a Messiah? Have you ever stopped and pondered what a Messiah is? In the Old Testament, a Messiah could be a prophet, a Messiah could be a priest, a Messiah could be a king. Really, a Messiah means anointed one. In the Old Testament, uh, at different times of Israel's history, they'd anoint people with olive oil, they'd pour it over their head, they'd touch their head with it, or they'd had different traditions, but it was a setting aside of someone for a work, setting aside of someone, uh, someone for a vocation of serving God. The symbol of the oil running down the head was a symbol of the Spirit's anointing, of God's power upon somebody. So throughout history, there's been a lot of messiahs. The Greek word is Christ, translating the Hebrew word Messiah. But Peter says it in, in, a, in, a, in a way that's emphatic. You are the Christ. We believe you are the Messiah. Where did that come from? Well, really in the Old Testament, it doesn't talk about the Messiah directly a whole lot. It talks about the person who is the Messiah. Uh, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and some of the minor prophets, they speak a lot of the coming son of David, the prophesied son of David, the one who would continue on the line of David, a king in David's line who would restore Israel to its former glory. Uh, during the, the, the 500s and 600s, 400s B.C., Israel had fallen into sin and brokenness. They were exiled. They were sent away from the promised land. But the prophet said, man, one's going to come one day. A king's going to come one day, and he's going to bring back the glory of Israel. He's going to set Israel high in the world's sight. He's going to bring back all the Jews. He's going to establish the kingdom again. Uh, after the 400s, there, it's what's called the intertestamental period, uh, where there wasn't any revelation from God, no scriptures, no prophets. Uh, about 63 AD, uh, the Romans take, uh, took control of the area we call, historians call Palestine, what we call Israel, what the Bible calls Israel. This, this stretch of land that's uh, so uh, prophetic and so important in world history. The Romans came and, and they, they set up their kingdom and their rule, their reign. 
And this really set off a, a hunger among God's people, praying, begging God for the Messiah to come. And, and in their minds, it really sharpened. The Son of God, please, please bring the, the Messiah. Son of God in the Old Testament sometimes just referred to kings that were under the Lord's authority. Bring the Son of God. Bring the Messiah. Cast off the Romans. And they really started to pray and hope and dream of this king who would come and, and really be a conquering king. Casting off the Roman shackles. Casting off the, 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 the soldiers in their midst who were taking bribes and full of corruption and, and the evil government they were under. They're, they're begging and they're praying and they're pleading. And so there's this hope that rose up among several of the sects and several of the divisions of, of, within Israel that the Messiah, the King would come and he'd, he'd set up his messianic kingdom and everything would be put back into order and Israel would be on the head again and, and ahead of the nations and just back like in David's time, in Solomon's time, full of wealth and prosperity and shalom. Peter says, yeah, we, we believe you're the Messiah. But Jesus, instead of saying, yeah, give me five, brother. Yeah, you got it. You finally got it. Look what he says in verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What? What's going on there? What it, what it means is they got the term right. They got the title right. But they didn't understand why Jesus came. They, maybe they got part of it right. They got the big picture right. There will be a messianic king. There will be a, a time when God reigns on earth where he will set up his throne. He will set up his kingdom. And there will be no ifs, ands, or buts that God reigns when Jesus comes back. They, they, they got that part right, but they, they're missing some important information. They, they, they were mission, missing some, some very important parts of, of Jesus' mission. Before the crown, there needed to be a cross. Before glory came, eternal glory, when the kingdom comes to earth, there needed to be a sacrifice. And so he says, hey, hold on. I don't want you spreading uh, misunderstanding. You got the far term right, but you're missing the near term. I need to explain more to you about what it means to be a Messiah. I need to explain more to you about what it means for, for me to be the, the man, the Messiah, the Christ. So, so don't tell anybody because I don't want you spreading false ideas. What's going to happen? Because what did happen? Did, did Jesus come and did he throw off the Romans? No. Actually, the Romans ended up destroying Jerusalem, destroying the Judaism of the day. They came in judgment by God's hand. So he didn't want them, didn't want them spreading a, a, the idea, the popular opinion that Jesus was going to take care of all the Romans and set up the kingdom immediately. There was more that needed to take place. And so he's asking them for a verdict, but then he says, okay, you got it, but now let's clarify. And so he spent many, many months teaching the disciples who he was so they'd be prepared to serve in his name, to preach the kingdom and it's coming to call people to repentance and faith. So if you look at verse 31, he gets into the teaching. This is a summary of what uh, he taught, but it's, it's coming to a head. And isn't it in interesting as we go toward, to, towards Easter, as we enter this time of reflection and this time of, of remembering what God has done, 
How easy it is for us to, to think about the glory and think about the splendor and think about the wonder and how easy it is for us to forget about the cross and what it means to be a Savior. So he had to explain things and teach them and show them what he had in mind because ultimately he wants them to follow him more accurately and more fully. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In the sense of charging them not to tell anybody about their verdict, their judgment, in verse 31, he immediately begins to clarify who he is and and what his mission is. Uh, He uses the title, Son of Man. If you quickly turn back to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, we studied this a lot when we preached through the, gospel, the, the, the book of Daniel, and it's come up again and again, and in the latter part of Mark's gospel, it comes up again and again, so let's clarify exactly what he meant, how he entitled himself. A a title for the Messiah, an accurate title, is Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And I saw in night visions, Daniel's having visions, God's giving him visions, prophetic visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus comes uh, to this, this time of teaching and clarification. He says, yeah, you got it right, the Messiah, and, and maybe the better term that doesn't have all, all the political connotations and the nationalistic connotations and all the things that you think about when you think about Messiah. Think about me as the Son of Man. I am the one who will have an eternal kingdom. I am one who will have an eternal dominion. I am the one who all the nations will bow down to. I am the one that God has set aside to be worshipped by the peoples of the earth. I am the Son of Man. But you have to understand. What you don't grasp is that there's more to the gospel than the kingdom. The expectations of the Jews, they heard Jesus say, hey, the kingdom's here. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. It's near. They, They immediately thought of God coming back to restore the nation to glory. They immediately thought of the promises of God reigning upon the earth and the whole world worshiping Him. They got part of the gospel. He's starting to explain to them the fullness of the gospel. 
the son of man that you hope I will be, the one that you're, you're laying all your cards down on, you're laying all your chips down on, the, 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 the one that you're hoping for, that's me, but you got to see something clearly if you're going to follow me. you got to know more about what I intend to accomplish so that you can walk in my steps. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. Uh, this is new to the disciples. In first century Judaism, there wasn't any connotation, any clue that the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, would be a suffering Savior. Totally out of the realm of, of their understanding. When they, when they read Isaiah 53, they did not see the, the, the Messiah, the Christ, that they were hoping for and praying for and begging for. They saw a conquering king. They saw a rescuing hero in the sense of rescuing them from the armies. They saw the Messiah raising up an army to destroy the wicked. They didn't see this coming at all. That he would suffer many things and be rejected by who the elders uh, leaders in Israel, the chief priests, and the scribes. These, these are the, the three groups that make up the Sanhedrin, the rule of 70 in, in Israel. They, uh, some were Sadducees, some were Pharisees. The chief priests were mostly Sadducees. The scribes were mostly Pharisees. The elders, uh, probably a mix. But they were the ones that uh, were set aside to lead Israel and guide Israel. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, who are, who are man, so pumped up, he's the Messiah. You're the Messiah. Yeah, we're going to the top. We're going to take over this world. We're going to rule and reign. Uh, we're with him. Can, can, can you sense when you read through the, the Gospels how excited they are to be with Jesus? Because they think as he's going to be glorified, they're going to be glorified. And there's a revolution that Jesus is teaching here, a mindset revolution, a, a, a change in thinking. I'm going to be rejected by the leaders of the land. I'm going to be rejected by the most important people in Israel. I'm going to be killed. But after three days, I'm going to rise again. And again, the disciples have no, no, no connotation of what's going on. They have no frame of reference. This is totally a, a whole new category. For their whole life, they've raised up to dream about the Messiah. For their whole life, they, they, they've been hoping that the Messiah would come and bring their nation to glory. And suddenly, after they've put everything, they've, they've left their homes, they've left their families, they've left their businesses to follow Him. He says, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer many things. Wow. And so you can understand Peter's response. Peter loves Jesus. Peter's given everything for Jesus. He, he, he's, what? He goes to him and he begins to rebuke him. And the word that Peter uses for rebuke is the same word that Jesus used to cast out demons. So in other words, it's a very harsh rebuke. It's a very stern rebuke of Jesus Christ. Peter says, not you. There's no way. Stop that thinking. Give that up right now. That's not going to happen. <laughs> He's a bold man. Seeing someone who's done miracles, seeing someone who's raised people from the dead to rebuke him and say, you're wrong. That's Peter. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. In other words, Peter is speaking for the twelve. All of them are, are in the same mode of thinking. No way. 
The Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah doesn't get killed. I mean, they're not even hearing the promise at the end about rising on the third day. That's probably not even entering their, 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 their thinking. They're so shocked and stunned. Jesus' teaching here is scandalous. But Jesus turns and rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Satan means adversary. So Satan, uh, Peter, you're acting as my adversary here. You're standing against God's will here. You have in mind the things of man. You have in mind the things concerning man, what man hopes for, what the people hope for. You're not thinking about the things of God. You're not thinking about the plan of God. You're not thinking about what God wants to accomplish. It's all about you. It's not about me or God. So either get with me or get out of my way. Satan in the wilderness tempted Jesus to pull away from the mission, right? Remember Jesus when he was tempted for 40 days? Satan was always calling him to, to give up on God's way, to give up on God's will. Make your own glory. Seek your own fame. Fulfill the promises yourself. Don't wait on God. He was an adversary. Jesus, however, walked with God completely. He obeyed God completely. He stayed true to God no matter what. He wouldn't depart or sideline from the mission. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're acting like my adversary. Stop it. You 12, you got to know that I'm going right where God wants me to go. Did you notice when he said to, uh, to the guys um, about his suffering, he said, the Son of Man must suffer. This is God's plan. This is God's will. It's been prophesied. I'm going to obedience. I'm walking with obedience. I'm living in obedience to the Father's will. And you can come or you can go. You can, you can get out of my way or you can follow. What are you going to do? Have you come to a verdict about Jesus Christ? Have you made your decision about who He is? Is your understanding of the Messiah complete? That His near-term work, as we see it on this side of the cross, was to go to Jerusalem to be arrested, to be beaten, to be flogged, to be destroyed. His near-term work was to go as a sacrifice. Do you understand Jesus was the anointed one? He was the prophet who was to come, anointed by God's power. He was the priest who would give the, the sacrifice, the offering that would satisfy God. He was the king who was to come, the anointed one. But he had to go to the cross first by our redemption. That's the beautiful thing about what we celebrated at the table this morning. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He sent His only Son to die to pay our debt. To die in our place. To receive our punishment that we so richly deserved so that we could be reconciled to God. So we could become part of God's family and become a people of God forgiven and free. 
Jesus urges the disciples to think about who he is. And then he asks them, are you sure you want to follow me? Are you sure you want to be my disciples? Verse 34. Calling the crowd to him and with his disciples. So the highest, the most committed people to the people who are just new, gathering around him, hoping to get healed. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What is the profit of man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's a moment of decision. It's a moment of, of choosing. They've come to, to grips of who He is. They've come to grips with His mission. They, they come to see Him finally as a suffering Savior. They, they, they're, they're, they're digesting, and Mark has condensed it a lot, of course. They're digesting, and they're thinking, they're processing. He, he's going to Jerusalem to die. He's giving His life away. This is a Messiah we never thought of, someone who we, we've been following that we didn't realize, realize the full extent of what it what he was about. And Jesus says, this is my, my journey, my agenda, my way of living, my, my passion. This is uh, uh, me going in the obedience to the Father. What about you? What about you? What about you? Are you going to be my follower? Are you going to continue after me? Are you going to walk in my steps? Are you going to live with me or not? It's a very practical and relevant question to Mark's audience. Like there, it's, it's, it's really interesting to think about how this gospel has come together. You realize in Rome, during the time that uh, Mark is, is sending this gospel to his readers, the Christians in Rome are suffering greatly. It's a time of Nero's persecution, a time when Nero is burning Christians at the stake, when Nero is t turning Christian loose in the arena to be torn up by wild animals, where persecution is a real fear, where suffering is a real anxiety among the people. He's writing to a group of people who are coming to grips with what it means to follow Jesus. Are you willing to follow Jesus all the way? Are you willing to live with Jesus even when things aren't bright and glorious? It was easy for the disciples to follow Jesus when everything was about the kingdom, when everything was about the glory. Man, we're on the road to riches. We're on the road to prosperity. We're on the road to glory. We're on the road to no more evil. We're on the road to no more wickedness in our midst. The Romans will be cast out. But then Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to live this life of giving my life away. I'm going to live this life of having to follow God even when it hurts. What about you? And so the Roman Christians are being brought this gospel of Mark. And he's, he's brought before them again and again. Look what Jesus did. Look at his power. Look at his authority. Look at his might. Look at how he sets people free. Look at, look at how he delivers. Who do you say he is? The original setting is then brought to, gospel, the, to the, the people of Romans, and, and Mark is asking them, who do you say he is? 
And Mark is asking them as they look at Jesus for how he lived and what he accomplished, people who are living and suffering because of Jesus, because they're Christians, he's asking them again, will you follow no matter what? Are you going with Jesus or are you going to get out of his way? Are you going with Jesus or are you going to walk with him and obey him and, and, and listen to him and be his disciple or not? So the people in, in Rome and in, in uh, the Roman Empire, as Nero raged, they had to make some decisions. It would be easier to deny Jesus in some ways, but what would it cost? It would be easier when the Roman authorities or when you went before the judge ask you, are you a Christian, to say, no, I'm not. But what would be the cost? What is the cost of discipleship? What is the, what is the, the purpose of following Jesus in this life? What is, what is the meaning of it? So he calls the crowd, he calls the disciples, and he lays it out. Following Jesus, following Mark's to the, to the Roman Christians, following Jesus looks like this. To the original 12 and to the crowd, Jesus says, following me looks like this. Following me requires these kind of attitudes and these, kind, these kinds of ways of living. If anyone would come after me, so again, he's, he's asking them, will you come after me? Will you be my disciple? Will you follow me? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Two real exhortations here, two real descriptions, two real calls, uh, two sides of the same coin. One is negative, one is, one is positive. The negative saying, let him deny himself. Let her deny herself. Self-denial is, uh, is something that uh, we can get confused about really quickly. The idea of, of, of lifting yourself up, it, we see it all the time. We, we've had dramatic pictures in the last several weeks of, of different uh, ways that uh, a world leader has set himself up for glory, how he's exalted himself. I read the other day about Vladimir Putin having a $700 million yacht. That's not denying yourself. That's exalting yourself. I read about the founder of Amazon building such a huge yacht recently in the Netherlands that they have to remove a bridge. They have to remove a bridge so those, the yacht can get down the river. <laughs> such a huge yacht, such a huge thing. And we think as, as people, man, that's an extravagant, extravagant example of, of self-centeredness, of self-worship, of self-grandiose uh, thinking. But... Could we be living for ourselves as well? Uh, what he means by denying self is don't make yourself an idol. Don't make yourself the center of the world. Don't make everything revolve around you. A self-centered person, an idolatrous person, a self-idolatrous person is somebody who's always about their desires and their needs. They're always thinking about what they, they want and what, what they have to have. A self-centered person is never thinking about other people. 
They're always thinking about what, what it does for me. I'm the center of the world. I'm the center of all things. Everything needs to contribute to my happiness and my pleasure and my joy. Deny yourself means to not make yourself the center of life. It doesn't mean that, uh, that you don't take care of yourself. Self-denial, of course you take care of yourself. God expects us to take care of our bodies, to exercise. He, he expects us to you know, uh, pay the bills, have a roof over our head, get clothes for our children, etc., etc. It's not, it's not Self-denial is not an asceticism where you hate all things or you, you hate beautiful things or you can't, you can't uh, have nice things. Um, there, there's so many ways to look at self-denial. You, you don't hate yourself. You don't hate your personality. That's not what he's talking about. To deny yourself means negatively that you don't put yourself at the center of life. Jesus famously demonstrated what it was when he, even though he was in Philippians chapter 2, on par with God, equal with God, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and become obedient even to the point of death. Jesus denied himself even though he had reasons for people to worship him and glorify him and, and exalt him. He denied himself. He set aside his own glory, his own fame, his own honor to serve people. Jesus says to those who want to come after him, Jesus says to you, if you want to go after Jesus, that you need to deny yourself. Stop with the self-worship. Stop expecting other people to worship you. Stop expecting the world to revolve around you. It's not about you. Deny yourself. We look at the lavishness of our culture, the lavishness of our society, and these words are rather stunning because we're taught, like little Vladimir Putin's, that we deserve a bigger house, and we deserve a bigger truck, and we deserve a better future. We deserve people to respect us and honor us and glorify us. And Jesus says, cast that devil down within yourself. Deny yourself if you want to follow me. That's a negative way of saying it, but the positive way of saying it, believe it or not, is pick up your cross and follow me. How could that be positive? <laughs> Deny yourself, but pick up your cross and follow me. Well, in the Roman world that, that Jesus saw and the, the disciples saw and they lived in, when the Romans crucified someone, they'd, they'd force the the prisoner going to execution to carry part of their cross. Probably usually the cross beam of some, some capacity. There was different ways of crucifying people, but usually the cross beam. Sometimes the whole cross, but some, most of the times the cross beam. And what it meant was, when they crucified somebody, they were saying, you've rebelled against us. You've refused to submit, it, submit yourself to the government. You've refused, as a, as a criminal, to submit yourself to the authority of Rome. And so we're going to force a submission upon you. The symbol of submission is you carrying the crossbeam. And so when Jesus says for you, if you want to follow him, you're not picking up his cross, you're picking up your own cross. It's a symbol of saying, it's a way of saying, a figure of speech of saying that you are positively choosing to say yes to God no matter what. You're submitting yourself to God's way. It's a total surrender, in other words. Deny yourself and totally surrender in the sense of a Roman criminal, uh, someone being executed, picking up their cross. You pick up your cross and say yes to God, 
total obedience, total following, total going after. And follow me. An ongoing following. The following there, it says when he says, come follow me, it's, it's, a, it's a present imperative. It's a, it's a keep following, a keep following. What does that look like? What, is that, what does that mean? Deny yourself. Don't make yourself the center of things. Don't live for yourself. Don't live for your glory. Don't live, live for God's glory. Follow him. Remember, uh, I think it was just last week where we, to those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Like listen to the word, but then obey it. Listen to the word, then live it out. Obedience. A total surrender. Are you that kind of person that's willing to go all the way to deny what the world constantly tells you you need or you deserve? You deserve that. You deserve that. Where you say, no, I don't deserve that. I'm choosing to go after Christ. I'm living for Him. I'm giving my life to Him. Total surrender. What does that look like? Well, he gives four examples. If you notice, starting in verse 35, there's several of these little words, for. For whoever would save his life will lose it. What does it mean to save your life? Well, uh, he's talking about the people that are living for self. Well, I can't, I can't give up my security. I can't give up my safety. I have to protect my life. I've got my nest egg. I've got my house. I've got all these things. I can't do anything to risk it. I've got a great job. I can't, I can't follow Jesus at work because I might get fired. I, I can't risk my family. I can't follow Jesus and my family because my family might reject me. He's saying if you're, if you're living that way, you're living to save this life, your time right now. But if you're living for yourself in that way, it's all about you, you're going to lose your life, your eternal life. Those who let go of those things, those who lose their life, for my sake and the gospel's sake, they're going to find it. The eternal life. Man, are you living for self or are you living for Jesus? If you're living for self, man, you've got your reward right now. Whatever, whatever, uh, whatever worldly things that you're holding on to, that you're clutching to, that's your reward. You will not have an eternal reward. You'll not have an eternal future. You've got your reward. If you want to save your life, well, but you'll lose whatever comes, whatever the kingdom brings. You're casting yourself out of the kingdom because you're not living by faith. But man, if you're willing to give up all things, and notice the term willing. Sometimes people have different crosses. Remember the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus. And, and, and he said, man, I'll do anything. And, and Jesus saw his issue was money and wealth. He said to the rich young ruler, man, you give that up and come follow me. We're good. But he wouldn't give it up. Maybe your issue isn't wealth. Maybe your issue is, is power. Maybe your issue is respect. Are you willing to give up that for Jesus? Then you'll find your life. The second illustration. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? <laughs> man, you could go about saving your life, man, accumulating wealth, buying all the most beautiful things, all the best clothes. Man, you could have the best reputation, have everybody in town love you. Oh, that old Jaron, he's a good old boy, isn't he? Man, you got the respect of everybody. Man, if you gained everything, what would that matter? When it all burned someday, what would it matter? As you went to hell someday, what would it matter? If you gained everything, if you gained that $700 million yacht, who cares when eternity goes on forever 
Outside of the kingdom of God, don't you want the kingdom more than you want stuff? Of course you do. When you think about the economics of it, when you think about the profit and loss, the balance sheet, he's using economic terms. Man. He says in verse 37, For what can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing in this world. Nothing in this world. You can't have it both ways. Either you're going with Jesus or not. Either you're following me, he's saying, or not. Even you're co- either you're coming after me or not. Even you're walking in my way or not. Verse 38 is the fourth illustration, or this fourth ex- ex- explanation of what it means to deny yourself and pick up your cross. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Wow. Uh, so maybe you might think that it's uh, following Jesus might get you into trouble and, and uh, might throw you into prison. You, you might think it's more tempting to say, well, going to prison, I don't think I can handle that. Getting, uh, getting the government after me, I can't handle that. Or, or maybe in, in, for the Romans, uh, is, uh, the Roman Christians during the time of Nero, oh man, it might be easier to deny Jesus. And, and what they're doing is, is maybe someone is coming. Are, are you really a Christian? I heard you're a Christian. You know, Nero's people. Uh, and they might be tempted to say, oh, no, I'm not a Christian. So they've denied Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is saying, don't you realize that one day I am coming back? I'm going to come in the glory of the Father. And if you've been embarrassed of me, I'm going to be embarrassed of you. If you've been ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. Are you with me or not? Are you going with me or not? Are you living with me or not? Come and follow me. In, in chapter 9, verse 1, he gives an encouragement, a vindication. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, it could be the transfiguration. It could be Jesus' resurrection. It could be Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. But he's saying, right, right now you might not see it. But one day the kingdom of God will come in power and you will be vindicated. You, the reward will be yours. What you've lost in this life, man, the kingdom of God is going to be great. Are you coming with me or not? As, uh, as we go to Jesus' passion and we head towards Easter, it's a time of decision. It's a time of reflection on what Jesus has done and who He is. It's a time to reconsider the path of our life and count the cost again. Am I a Christian? Do I want to be a Christian? Am I ready for li- to live for Jesus Christ? Am I going to obey Him even if the consequences are hard and harsh and difficult? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Will you follow Jesus Christ? Only you can make up your mind on that. It's worth it. He is Messiah. He is Son of Man. He is coming back in glory. Will He find you with Him? Will He find that you followed Him? Trusted your life to Him no matter what? May we be a people who follow Jesus 
and may Jesus be glorified through his people. Please stand in the Lord's presence. Our Lord Jesus, thank you for letting us worship you today. Thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for letting us sing to you and hearing our songs of praise and worship. Thank you for receiving our offering and thank you for meeting us at the table as uh, helping us remember what you've done. Thank you for letting us uh, hear your word and thank you for being our God. We ask for the grace, the wisdom, the power, the might to, to follow you no matter what. To walk with you in this sinful and adulterous generation May you be our God, and may our behaviors and our actions and our choices prove it. Lord, we ask that during this Easter season that more and more people would come to worship you. We ask that as the, the gospel is heard about a suffering Savior going to the cross and dying for sins and rising from the dead, we pray that in this world where people are finding it's difficult to live and difficult to have hope. May they turn to you and be saved. Give us the grace to be your church for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise, your church of worship and proclamation. Be blessed, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. The gospel according to the Bible is that Jesus Christ, who was and is the eternal God, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, died for our sins on the cross, and rose from the dead three days later. He then ascended to the Father's right hand, where he sits making intercession for his people, and right now he is establishing the kingdom of God on earth. You can enter into a saving relationship with God, by repenting of your sins and placing your full trust in Jesus' life, his death and resurrection on your behalf. In Christ, you will find forgiveness, acceptance, freedom, peace, hope, and a future. If you would like more information about Christianity or Living Water Bible Fellowship, visit our website at livingwateralamosa.org. God bless.